Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us, as he also does on most Mondays, is Sam Bendett, one of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, and he's one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, especially Russia's uh, unmanned capabilities. Sam, always great having you on the program. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Fargo. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo BRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and Leonardo DRS is sponsoring our coverage at the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, just outside Washington, D.C. this week. Sam, thanks very much again uh, for joining us uh, today. Uh, As we've been discussing on this uh, this program, and you and I discussed last week, Ukraine has been making some extraordinary battlefield uh, gains. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, didn't get any love, uh, at least publicly, from uh, Xi Jinping, who indicated that their limitless partnership uh, had limits. Uh, And even Narendra Modi uh, criticized Putin and said this is a time for peace uh, and not a time for war uh, last week. Putin has brushed off losses, uh, accelerated strikes on civilians uh, in Ukraine, uh, and is uh, employing everything from, you know, Iranian strike drones uh, to, uh, you know, North Korean missiles uh, and the like to prosecute his his campaign, uh, even though Russians look like they're still uh, losing uh, ground. Take us from the macro level. How is Russia responding to Ukraine's gains? And actually, how are the countries like China uh, and India that are publicly criticizing Russia actually helping it? There hasn't been much change to the Kharkiv front since the Ukrainians massive uh, counterattack. So there hasn't been a significant Russian counterattack. Um, there hasn't been a significant Ukrainian follow-up. It doesn't mean that one is not coming. In fact, Ukrainians were cited by the Russian uh, military in massing forces and possibly preparing to press the Russians even further. Uh, There's a lot of discontent right now with the performance of the Russian military. And we are seeing that evidenced by Russian politicians actually speaking publicly um, against this war. We're also seeing a lot of criticism on Russian speaking telegram channels that um, are basically broadcasting this war. These are very influential telegram channels led by individuals on the ground in Ukraine who have absolutely massive following um, in the hundreds of thousands and some even over a million. And so they are indicating uh, very significant gaps in Russian military capabilities uh, almost seven months into the war. But again, uh, there's the sort of the, the tactical situation and the Russians are trying to reverse that. They are trying to recruit more people for this war. Videos emerged of Wagner Group actually uh, recruiting amongst the Russian prisoners, promising them uh, freedom if they fight for six months uh, in Ukraine and live. And so there are significant issues experienced by the Russian military that have been publicly documented, especially manpower issues and and the quality of the fighting force. On the macro level, we have public criticism of China and India 
of Russian Russian conduct of the war. And a lot of that is probably evidenced by the fact that the global economy has been significantly impacted by this conflict. And so uh, while uh, China and India are publicly hinting that uh, Russia isn't on the right side of history in this war, at the same time, when it comes to the actual uh, trade interactions between those countries, uh, some of them are actually growing. In fact, uh, Russian uh, markets, especially some of the microelectronics and consumer electronics markets, are getting flooded by Chinese products, for example. Like the Chinese cell phone manufacturers are winning greater, greater share of the Russian market because of the departure of other brands because of the sanctions. Russia is looking to India to fill a lot of its uh, IT software, microelectronics needs as well. And it's looking to India as a significant market for the Russian software and hardware products as well. And uh, that business is probably slated to increase in the coming months as Russia seeks to uh, reposition itself again in the wake of sanctions and the departure of many global brands. So we are seeing what could be uh, a sort of significant public uh, acknowledgement that Russia's major allies are not happy with the war. At the same time, these countries are, um, are continuing their economic and trade relationships with Russia. And again, in some cases, this relationship, um, so these relationships may actually grow. Um, I, w- I want to uh, shift a little bit to the unmanned uh, front. Um, a lot of coverage over the weekend, uh, including some commentary by Ukrainian military folks about the effectiveness uh, of the Iranian uh, drones that Russian forces have been uh, employing. Um, you know, you you talked about microelectronics and other capabilities that are coming from India and from China uh, that are helping uh, the Russians uh, as well, not just energy purchases, with, which both, both benefit from as well. Uh, but also North Korea has uh, contributed millions of rockets to the Russians, uh, as well as trainers. How are the North Korean munitions and especially the Iranian drones um, changing the the nature of this battle? As I indicated last week, uh, North Korean military technologies are based in a large part on Soviet designs or later Russian designs, as are many Chinese and, for example, Iranian uh, military weapons and systems. And so there's a lot of compatibility between what the North Koreans are manufacturing for their military and what the Russians may need today. Uh, So uh, that is why this uh, supposed North Korean transfer is actually taking place. As far as Iranian drones go, that's a very interesting story, and it's the one I've been uh, trying to track closely. Simply put, Russia doesn't have enough combat drones in this war. It does not have enough loading munitions in this war. It has some, and we've seen evidence of their use, but they're very few. Uh, In fact, um, the Russian combat drones um, have practically disappeared from this war um, after the first several months. And this is what Iranian transfer of these drones provides. It provides Russia with a large number of combat proven um, ISR attack strike uh, UAVs, as well as loading munitions. And so Russia simply doesn't have that uh, in, in large numbers in its arsenals. And so it, it gains basically um, a large Uh, quantity of systems that could be launched against the Ukrainians. And as already indicated by the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, some of these strikes by Shahed-136 loading munition are actually having an effect, that they're able to to penetrate Ukrainian air defenses and actually strike Ukrainian long-range artillery, which is a very priced target for the Russian military. The M777s, the HIMARS, the self-propelled howitzers, uh, 
uh, are very much on, uh, on the top of the Russian uh, strike list. And this is where these loitering munitions are actually very useful. And again, they don't always have to reach the target. They can even uh, damage uh, the target as well. But they're indicating that Russia now has the capacity to strike at, uh, at the tactical level, close to the front, and possibly much longer, because a lot of these Iranian drones have a range of several hundred kilometers to possibly over a thousand kilometers, which would potentially put a lot of the Ukrainian civilian and military infrastructure within Russian sites. And this is, I think, what they're going for as they're starting to field more and more Iranian drones. Uh, there are uh, questions whether such Iranian UAVs can uh, be used successfully in a uh, Ukrainian airspace, which has a lot of early warning radars, air defenses, electronic warfare. In other words, when uh, some of these drones were used by Iran and their proxies, they were not really uh, used in a very challenging airspace. Ukrainian airspace is very challenging, but now the fact that Shahed-136 is able to strike some of these targets on the ground indicates that these drones are capable of operating in a very complex Ukrainian environment. And so all sides are learning. Ukrainians are learning how to counter these drones. Russians and Iranians are learning how to um, strike Ukrainian positions and targets with greater efficiency. So a growing number of Iranian drones in Russian hands is actually probably uh, bad news for Ukraine. And, and this was indicated uh, in the Wall Street Journal article that I'm referencing. Uh, and, and it was a very good piece. And of course, in every one of these things, right, it's advantage, uh, disadvantage, uh, right? Uh, Ukraine is being helped by the United States and a lot of allies and partners. Uh, and obviously, that's a capability, for example, uh, that uh, the U.S. has been preparing for. And indeed, Israel and other nations have been looking to counter. Uh, so it will be very interesting to see how quickly uh, the Ukrainians can adapt. I have to talk to you about the length of the campaign. The United States furnishing uh, cold weather uh, equipment uh, and, and uh, clothing uh, to the Ukrainian side. What's your estimation? Uh, and how are, how's the Russian side preparing as well, right? I mean, because I think they have donation campaigns. What should we be expecting over the next couple of months? And, and what's everybody doing now to get ready uh, for the depths of the winter? That's correct. Uh, cold weather gear is on the U.S. list to the Ukrainian military. And a lot of Russian telegram channels are now starting to fundraise for uh, cold weather clothing, asking Russian soldiers to actually submit uh, their precise measurements so that um, they could donate this clothing directly to the soldiers, directly to the front, bypassing the sort of the larger MOD bureaucracy. Uh, there's another interesting item, actually, when it comes to the telegram channels and the length of this war, in that um, a lot of um, fundraising for for example, quadrocopters to be used by the Russian forces and our allies was done not just in Telegram, but on other social media. Over the weekend, Vkontakte, one of Russia's largest social media platforms, actually indicated that it is going to stop this type of fundraising and it is going to redirect people to fundraise through official charity websites. So I, I think that's, that's a very interesting indication that there are changes afoot and um, either the Russian military infrastructure, oh, sorry, either the Russian military wants to take more of a control over how the funds are raised and how equipment is delivered to the front, or there's something else here. Uh, again, uh, these telegram channels, the Russian language telegram channels are very influential and are providing a lot of details into this conflict. 
And the fact that both sides are preparing for cold weather indicates that there's an expectation that this fighting will continue for several months, at least when the cold weather comes. And of course, in that part of the world, cold weather can come in October. Um, and right, so exactly. right by October, you can have very cold temperatures. Um, in fact, we should remind listeners that in 1941, uh, there were sub-zero temperatures already in early September, which significantly slowed German advance on Moscow. And, uh, and so um, we can have cold weather coming very soon, and therefore all sides are preparing for this eventuality. And of course, again, this fighting is expected to continue. Um, there aren't indications, at least from the Russian side, that they can achieve a very significant counterattack and regain some of the territory and reverse some of their losses. Therefore, they're probably going to dig in and establish defensive perimeters so that Ukrainians do not advance any further. And of course, when it comes to the Ukrainian military, they want to uh, achieve further gains and build on their very successful Kharkiv offensive, possibly in the south of the country now around Kherson, and again, possibly in the east and around Donbass. So this can continue for weeks and months to come. And this, of course, necessitates a change in gear and the preparation for different temperatures for different environment in this war. Now, you mentioned at the top of the program, Sam, uh, that Putin is, is being criticized, uh, right? Not just on Telegram channels, guys on the right, uh, are saying that he's not being brutal enough, and uh, guys on the left are saying that he's just, a, you know, a bungling, incompetent autocrat. Um, for a guy who prides himself to be sort of, you know, the emperor of of the region, we're also seeing Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan get into a border fight. Azerbaijan attacked Armenia uh, again, showing that the empire, in some cases, are are fracturing as the czars. Uh, power is uh, diminished to try to use some little old-fashioned analogies and certainly the way Putin sees himself. How stable is Putin? And are all of these other things that we're seeing actually an evidence of his weakening authority and stature? Well, we should not overestimate Russia's influence in its former Soviet space in military terms. After all, a Nagorno-Karabakh war took place in 2020, um, a year and a half before the invasion of Ukraine has started. Clashes between Kyrgyz and Tajik forces uh, continued sporadically throughout the last 20 years, even as there are Russian bases in Tajikistan proper and Kyrgyzstan and in Armenia proper as well. So just because there's a Russian military presence there or there's Russian political influence or economic influence, it doesn't necessarily prevent some of these countries from pursuing their own foreign policy and security goals. Sometimes they do that by military means, not just economic or diplomatic means. So again, uh, Russia has a lot of influence in the region, but it doesn't apparently have enough influence to just put a full stop to all the fighting. Uh, of course, a lot of questions um, about Russian foreign policy in the Caucasus and Central Asia, how it relates to these former Soviet satellites. But apparently what we're witnessing is a lot more uh, freedom of political maneuvering in those countries. They can pursue their own security and defense policies, right? For example, uh, Kyrgyzstan acquired Turkish Bayraktar combat drones, and apparently they used them over the weekend against Tajik border forces. Obviously, Azerbaijan is once again using Bayraktar drones against Armenian 
stationary positions. And what's interesting about that is that there doesn't appear to be a lot of changes in tactics on the Armenian side after all the harsh lessons they've learned in the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Uh, so again, uh, Russia isn't a blunt force that can just invade a region and just put a stop to everything. It isn't a force that can just uh, put its hammer down and put a stop to the fighting. Its influence is, uh, is significant up to a certain point. And again, I think a lot of these countries are finding uh, that they are uh, exercising their own freedom of political and internal maneuvering and are willing to prosecute their goals through military means. And, and Putin's overall popularity? Folks are becoming a lot more public, whether uh, entertainers or uh, local politicians that are standing up against them at, at some potential cost. Um, is this yes, undermining we're... Putin's popularity overall? Well, we're witnessing a lot more public discontent and disagreement with his rule. But I think overall, if we look at the polling, if we look at the uh, situation in Russia, uh, he still enjoys significant popularity amongst the absolute majority of the population, even as that population may not publicly express some of their private frustrations. So he's still very popular. And it's not like there's a, a falling dominoes effect with more and more politicians standing up against the war. We have some politicians speaking out against the war. And as you even hinted earlier, others are actually calling for much harsher action against the right. Ukrainians. After all, as long as Putin prosecutes this war within the limited confines of a special military operation, he and his forces are going to be limited in what they can do in Ukraine, short of actual mobilization of the population and industry. So as long as it's a limited military operation, there are going to be a limited number of resources available to the Russian uh, forces. And that's, I guess, what we're witnessing now. We're witnessing almost uh, you know, Russia getting to the end of some of their stocks and supplies and having to turn to their friends and allies to replenish them. And so Putin actually indicated over the weekend um, that he and his country are in no hurry in Ukraine even as he is pressed by his uh, more conservative allies to actually raise the stakes in this fighting. So he appears to be thinking that you know, he can prosecute this war for a long time at the current levels. Right. Whether that view is uh, realistic or divorced from reality, this is what we're witnessing right now. And I think this is what we're going to be witnessing for the next several months. Uh, and, uh, I, and, and just as we part, I mean, I'd point out, right, I mean, he has a much longer strategy and his strategy isn't just about Ukraine, but it's also about dividing the West. And so he's counting on a, on a winter, on more discontent in Europe, rising food prices. He's going to stop uh, the grain deal, right, is the overwhelming expectation. You know, he, he granted the grain deal, hoping for some concessions. There are none. Sanctions are continuing. So from his standpoint, why, why not push it through the winter and have Europeans turn on their governments and maybe, uh, as we saw, I think, in Bulgaria, right, have a have a more pliable government replace a more critical government uh, at the end of the day. And, and just very briefly, Sam, I mean, are the Iranian drones arriving in enough volume to make a dramatic difference? Or is this almost like the Ukrainian use of the HIMARS system, where in a targeted fashion, you don't need very many of them to be able to make a big difference? I think this is sort of the billion-dollar question here. Uh, earlier, U.S. intelligence indicated several hundred drones. And in that package, uh, there are probably a lot of luring munitions. 
And so we just have to wait and see exactly what Russia fields and in what numbers. And uh, we will see that by, uh, by the indication of uh, Ukrainians shooting down some of these drones out of the sky, like what happened with Shahed-136. They can have a tactical impact. They can strike some of the long-range artillery positions. But for example, they can also have a significant operational impact if uh, Russian Iranian drones that can fly for several hundred kilometers can hit Ukrainian military infrastructure and start wreaking havoc in Ukrainians' rear, uh, which is what uh, Ukrainian drones and, and other projectiles were doing in the Kherson region. And so we have to, again, see what kind of drones were fielded. Because initially, the U.S. indication was Shahed-129, Mohajer-6, and Shahed-191. And these three were publicly discussed. And suddenly we have evidence of another drone uh, operated by the Russians, right? Shahed-136 loading munition. So it's possible that there are other drones that were not publicly announced before, maybe Ababil-2 which is also loading munition and that has been used by Iranian proxies against Saudi and Emirati targets at great distances. So there could be drones in Russian hands already that were not publicly announced. And so we'll have to adjust our sort of um, analysis of how Russia uses this technology as more and more information becomes available. Sam, thanks very much again. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much, Barbara. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen uh, of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, here in the flesh at uh, the Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show sponsored and hosted every year by the Air Force Association. Byron, great to see you in person. Great to see you and without a mask too, Vago. Exactly, but we're all vaccinated here and we have to show our certificates, so it's, we're all safe safe and sound. Um, top of the show, uh, Sam Bendet uh, joined us, talked to us a little bit about uh, the ebb and flow and that the Russians still have uh, some more in their bag of tricks and that uh, everybody's man, you know, building up cold weather gear uh, and ammunition for a protracted fight and how Iranian weapons might be changing the balance uh, in favor of the Russians. Talk to us about your takeaways as a, as a student of, uh, of, of warfare. Look, there was a lot of uh, excitement, quite frankly, over the the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the Kharkiv Oblast, and they did make some very impressive gains. But then you saw things kind of revert back to this static mode, you know. So we were there looking on a week by week basis. Uh, you know, my view is uh, this is just kind of the nature of, of conventional conflict. You know, until you see this kind of waterfall effect where the dominoes just start falling and one side has inexorable momentum. I think we're still in this phase where there's going to be a back and forth that it's probably going to last until 2023. You know, you could argue the balance has tipped in the Ukrainians' favor. Um, they're, they're certainly showing some battlefield skill. Um, they're going to need a hell of a lot more equipment. And the Russians aren't showing a willingness to mobilize. So I, I just don't see, I, I don't see how that will be an outcome that's going to favor Russia. But things can change. Things can change. And so... I wouldn't get too excited about what happens one week, either, you know, from a Russian perspective or a Ukrainian perspective. This, this thing to me is going to go on for a while. Um, which, was, uh, which was the original assessment, even if thousands of square kilometers of Ukrainian territory uh, have been uh, liberated. Uh, every week uh, in your notes, you always talk about something interesting, and uh, everybody's been talking about inflation. Uh, obviously, companies in the industry have been talking about it, saying the supply chain uh, is more exp expensive. Uh, a, a CEO who you and I both know well and have known well for a long time uh, uh, joked uh, that he's getting worked over by supply chain uh, challenges and inflation. You 
took a, a, an empirical look at inflation, what does it tell us about how inflation is actually affecting companies in this industry? Well, look, I'd commend everybody read uh, the National Defense Industrial Association released a report last week that talked about inflation, and they made some estimates about how the buying power of the Department of Defense had been impacted, not just for FY23, which is the budget that's still before Congress, but actually the 21 and 22 budgets, which are still to be, you know, there are portions of it that are still being spent in the form of outlays. Um, I'm, I appreciate the, their analysis and the work that went into it. I think, however, you really have to ask yourself, you know, is the CPI, uh, the Consumer Price Index, the same sort of inflation that the Department of Defense is seeing and, and that defense contractors are seeing? And the analysis that I did was basically looking at, uh, you know, one element of where you would expect to see inflationary pressure, which is operating margins by U.S. public, uh, reported by U.S. public contractors really going back to 2020 when this thing started up, uh, really kind of spring of 2021, so there's a little tale to look at our historic abasing uh, number. And it's hard to really see it in operating margins. They've been fairly stable. You know, there have been some obvious execution issues that have come up. There have been some mix issues that have come up as, as uh, some contractors have seen more development work than mature production work. But it's hard to say that, that it's really impacting companies' bottom lines here. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little, uh, I, think, I think there's just more work that has to be done on this um, is what it comes down to. And, and that the straight out, you know, the CPI, the rate of inflation of 8% is not the same rate that the Department of Defense is likely experiencing right now. And, and so what's the margin at which point that this does become a problem, right? I mean, members of Congress are mobilizing, industry is mobilizing. Uh, on Friday's program, we heard from Michael Herson and Dov Zakheim about what, um, you know, at what point the, the department will need redress. From your perspective, looking at the bottom line and the numbers, is this a one-year issue, a two-year issue? It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a five to eight-year issue quite bluntly, because I think a lot of it, yeah, there have been raw material price increases. You're seeing wage pressure pop up. You know, for companies that sign fixed price contracts, hey, that's there was a memo the department put out to that very effect that that's on you guys. You sign up for that. You have to manage your costs within that fixed price contract. You know, where you would start to, to see it show up is on cost plus contracts, um, and then, you know, the new stuff that would be put on contract. Obviously, there are other factors to weigh, um, you know, the civilian workforce in the Department of Defense and, and is their pay keeping pace with inflation. I will say one other thing, though, is, um, you know, the consensus is, and if you look at inflation historically, it tends to be very spiky. And so trying to manage this number on a, on a monthly basis, let alone a quarterly basis, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't, we don't even have an FY23 budget. So where I think it probably gets a real fresh look is in the, call it February to March timeframe in, in 2023, presuming we have an FY23 budget, and then we can really see how are those inflationary pressures really affecting the department's buying power. Uh, maybe NDIA is right in part of their analysis, but um, maybe, maybe there are other reasons to suggest that CPI is overstating the problem the Department of Defense is facing right now.
Um, we are uh, at AFA, uh, which is a great opportunity for people who haven't seen each other for a long time to greet, as we just heard that on the sidelines. Well, um, you've been here for a couple of hours, as have I. Uh, no major announcements, at least on the hardware side of things so far. What are you picking up and what are your expectations? What do you want to pick up? Uh, what are you looking for? What do you expect to hear uh, during your, your three days here? Two days here, excuse yeah. me. Well, the, fir the first thing is obviously just that the iconic programs, you know, to the extent that DOD, uh, that Air Force leadership will comment on them, that they're still on track. The Sentinel, uh, AKA the uh, ground-based strategic deterrent and B-21 bomber, um, so far so good. Uh, F-35 uh, supply chain issues, you know, are those getting worked out? How's that playing through? Um, obviously Lockheed's got a pretty big international order book coming that's, that's resulted from the changes in Europe. Um, Chad C2, you know, the, the broader network, you know, there, there's some interesting things on the show floor I want to go play. You did have an announcement that L3 had teamed with Embraer for a tanker. And, and then I think it's also, for me, it's also interesting to see what, what are the smaller new companies, who shows up, who has a much bigger stand this year than they did last year. Uh, Meta Aerospace uh, has, has a bigger presence this year. Andrel has a bigger presence. It's Shield AI. You know, and then you walk around the periphery and see what, what's new and what are people offering uh, that, that hadn't been the case in the past. And it is great seeing a presence uh, by Meta and obviously our mutual friend Manolis Carusas, who's looking to try to really reinvent uh, parts of this uh, business. And a lot of uh, really innovative smaller companies here, um, which is always a pleasure uh, seeing. Um, look at the week ahead. There's a big industrial base uh, event. There's a Wharton event. There's a lot that's going on. Walk us through uh, what the audience ought to be paying attention to over the coming week. Well, yeah, this week, obviously, you know, for the balance of AFA, we'll see what comes out over the next two days, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, CSIS is doing a, an event on the defense industrial base. I think it's going to be interesting and, and quite frankly, very timely. Um, you've got the chief operating officer of Lockheed Martin speaking at that event, someone from GE Aircraft Engine and someone from General Dynamics Land Systems. So it's going to be a big prime perspective, but, you know, uh, these industrial base issues, supply chain, I, I still think the biggest uh, issue is labor, skilled labor. Um, there was a, a commercial aerospace conference here in Washington, D.C. last week, and the supplier Spirit and Boeing both talked about this as, on one level, it's, it's a surprise that this had been a surprise. They, they all had demographic uh, issues in their workforce, um, and they could have foreseen some of this and planned for it a little bit better. But um, maybe, uh, maybe the pandemic had accelerated some of these trends, and it's just, it's going to be something that's going to take time for industry to really get back on its feet. And I'd say that's not just the defense sector, it's the entire U.S. economy, which the defense center, sector competes for labor and talent against. Uh, and uh, Wharton, as well as anything else, everybody ought to be paying yeah, attention Wharton, to. So Wharton is holding a uh, aerospace ventures conference out in California. Um, there, I don't think there's much uh, actual news flow as much as it's just a good, a good read on you know what's going on in that ecosystem. Uh, it's, the conference is taking place in Palo Alto, kind of at the heart of all this, um, and, it, and it looks like a pretty good mix of, uh, of people from the venture community, tech startups, uh, AFWorks, NavalX, you know, the, the usual suspects in this uh, in this innovation scheme. Uh, 
indeed, and it's a tremendous uh, organization that does really uh, a lot of thought-provoking work. Byron, absolutely great seeing you. Thanks very much. Look forward to having you back on next uh, Monday for a full after action, and folks should be tuning in uh, to our uh, Thursday uh, AFA program. We're going to have an expanded show uh, where we're going to do some analysis as well as some interviews uh, with some thoughtful people here at AFA. Byron, thanks very much. Thanks, Vago. I feel like I'm standing on the red carpet here at, at AFA.